From the studios of KPCW in Park City, this is Ma this is the Mountain Life, health healthy living in the Wasatch Back. Lynn Ware Peak is out today. I'm Katie Mullally. We bring you two previously recorded interviews with experts on health and what we put in our bodies. Lynn speaks first with Keith Barr, PhD and exercise science researcher who studies the effects of supplemental collagen on joints and connective tissue. Then Romy Mushtak is a board certified physician in neurology, integrated medicine and mindfulness for over 20 years. She discusses her cure for the busy brain. These guests when we return. Welcome back to The Mountain Life. I'm Lynn Ware Peak. Collagen. Now, why, when the natural production of collagen in our bodies promotes healthy tendons, joints, hair, skin, nail growth, why does it decline over time? And can we replace it effectively by taking collagen supplements, for example? Now, quote unquote, pop culture expert opinion is all over the board with saying it works or it's the biggest waste of money out there. So I decided to focus on someone who actually has numerous peer-reviewed articles and does regular research on the topic, real science. Keith Barr, PhD, is in the Department of Physiology and Membrane Biology at UC Davis, University of California, Davis. But the goal of his laboratory is to understand the molecular determinants of musculoskeletal development and the role of exercise in improving health and performance. He joins me now, Keith Barr. Welcome to The Mountain Life. Thank you, Lynn. It's great to be here. Well, I'm really excited to have you because it seems like on this show, we talk to a, a lot of different people and there are a lot of conflicting arguments or you know conversations about collagen and whether we can take it to actually augment what we're losing over time in my understanding at beginning at the age of 20. Yeah so so our bodies naturally produce collagen it's actually the most common protein in your body um, and so it makes up our tendons ligaments and skin but it also makes up our bones and it also makes up all of these other tissues that are that basically give our body shape and allow us to move and so when when we start to get up to our adult size and and shape we tend to decrease the the amount of collagen turnover that happens and we used to think that that was pretty much permanent that you couldn't really do anything about it and then a few years ago there was a study that came out of the netherlands where they showed that if they used special amino acids where they put in special amino acids and then they took out when people did a total knee replacement they took out all the tissues within the total knee and they looked to see how much of what they just gave as that special amino acid was made into proteins within all of those different tissues what they found is that the tendons and the ligaments actually turned over quite readily so did bone so did cartilage and so what that made us think is that you can really affect how your tendons ligaments and connective tissues develop over time and the two primary stimuli for that are exercise and nutrition so this brings up an immediate question for me which is Obviously, in this study that you cited, they're injecting these amino acids. And so let's go to the difference between injecting something and ingesting something. Is there a difference? Yeah, so basically, if we inject something into you, what happens is those whatever we put into you, it's in a bigger form. 
So anything that we're gonna eat, we're gonna break down into its constitutive building blocks. So these building blocks are what people call amino acids and all proteins are made from amino acids. And so the idea behind eating dietary collagen, for example, which is either gelatin, the same stuff that you use to make jello or mousses or all of the good desserty things, or hydrolyzed collagen, which is just the same thing that we make in our soups. So whenever, you know, turkey dinner and you're making, you're taking that stock, you're making a stock the next day, you boil the bones for a long time and you let it, you let it cool and you're going to get that layer of that jelly bit on top and that's collagen that's been extracted from the bones and we would use that to make gelatin if you want to make hydrolyzed collagen which is the normal thing that you see in supplements all you do is you take an enzyme and it just cuts it into small pieces and different companies use different enzymes but there's no real evidence that using a different enzyme has any effect on it and so basically all you're doing when you take in either gelatin or collagen hydrolyzed collagen is you are taking this protein that's made up of amino acids and what your body does when you eat it is it's going to break it down into very small either one or two there's a few peptides that you make but most of it is just going to be the basic amino acids and that's important for collagen because collagen is unique in proteins because it forms this this really cool coil in in our bodies in order to do that, it needs really small amino acids at very specific positions. So it has a very ordered sequence. And it's ordered sequences that it has a glycine amino acid. Every third amino acid is a glycine. So it has 33% of the amino acids are glycine. And then almost the same number are this other amino acid called proline. And so when we're trying to build collagen, we need lots of gly glycine and proline. And so when we eat collagen, all it does is it increases the amount of those amino acids. And there's a few other things that come with it. And those things have the potential to stimulate collagen synthesis in the cells within our body. Oh, so many questions arises from what you've just been talking about. So we have collagen synthesis. And if I understand correctly, it's something that is inspiring our own body to create collagen where it may not have otherwise. Um, or it does so in decreasing amounts. And then there's ingesting collagen itself that is replacing rather than synthesizing. Is is that correct? No, no, not at all. So, so there's this idea, and I think it's very common for people to not really, so they see collagen on the shelf at their local store, and they know everybody's told them that their skin is made up of collagen and their nails are made up of collagen. So what they think is I'm going to eat the collagen and it's going to come in and it's going to get incorporated into my skin. But instead what we do, we're not nearly that efficient. What we do is we take the big collagen protein and we break it all down into these one or two amino acids or all of these little things. And then we just use those as building blocks. And it's basically like what we're trying to do is we're trying to build a big wall with Legos. And what we want is we want to have a very specific pattern in our wall of Legos. We want it to be a blue one and then any kind of one, but then another green one. And so we need to have that blue, anything green, blue, anything green. And we need to repeat that over and over. And if we have a bunch of Legos that are already assembled and we've made a starship or something cool, what we need to do is we need to find the blue and the green ones. So we take apart that other thing that we've built and we use those as building blocks for this new wall we're building. Same thing is happening when we eat any type of food, it doesn't have to be dietary collagen. 
any type of food, we're breaking it down into these little amino acids and we're using those to build up our new proteins. If the amino acid sequence in what we're eating is close to what we're building, it's a lot easier to build what we want to build. And then there's a second thing that happens, and that's that some of the amino acids are very good at stimulating different proteins within our cells, and those proteins regulate protein synthesis. And so if we're trying to build muscle, the key protein, the key amino acid is leucine because leucine activates a protein within our muscles that causes our muscles to increase protein synthesis. And that's why everybody talks about leucine-rich protein because leucine-rich protein is good for building muscles. Leucine-rich proteins are things like eggs and, and meats and dairy products. And when we take those things in, we don't, we're not taking in, say, a steak and taking the muscle from the cow and putting it into the muscle from our muscle, our biceps. What we're doing is we're breaking it down into those protein, in those amino acids. And because there's lots of leucine, that's going to signal. And because there's all the other amino acids, now we've got all the building blocks we need in order to build more muscle. And so it's very similar back and forth between those two. Okay, that's a great way to explain it. Thank you for that. Now, a lot of the supplements that we take, for example, just I'm thinking of calcium, magnesium, and they are best absorbed and do their job in our bodies if they're combined. And I think this is where people get sort of confused about things. And maybe the same goes for collagen, because in your studies, I've seen a lot of collagen combined with vitamin C. Right. So, so vitamin C is an essential, it's an essential vitamin. And so what it does is it's necessary for an enzyme within our body to work. Okay. And, and every time the enzyme uses it, the, that vitamin C that it used, that molecule of vitamin C it used, it, it destroys it in the process of doing its job. So there's an enzyme and that enzyme is called prolyl hydroxylase. You don't need to know that. Basically what it does is it modifies the collagen that we're making. So our, I told you that our most common protein in our body is, is collagen. Our cells are making collagen all the time. What has to happen in order for that collagen to get out of my cell and into my skin or into my muscle or into my tendon or ligament is it has to be exported. And that absolutely requires vitamin C. The first nutrition study ever done in, in 1720s was done by a Scottish um, doctor who was on a ship and he had all these guys getting scurvy. And so in scurvy, your, your scars open up, your teeth fall out, your hair falls out. It's that you aren't making collagen. They didn't know that in the 1700s. And so he set up a study where he took 10 sailors and two of them got turpentine for some reason. And two of them got, and they gave them all these weird things. And then two of them got lemon and oranges, which we know are, are where you get vitamin C. And the ones who got lemons and oranges, they, get, they recovered. And so this is why for years and years, the British army was, was known to bring lemons and oranges. And, and, and that's why they were called limeys at a certain point, because the lime was one of the big things that they brought in order to maintain vitamin C. So the vitamin C is, a, is what we call a cofactor. It, it's something that needs to be there in order for us to export the collagen from our cells. If it isn't there, the collagen just gets stuck in our cells and it doesn't get where we want it to go. So you need both of them together. And because it gets destroyed, every time we wake up in the morning, 
you've used up most of the vitamin C in your body. And so in order for us to then stimulate collagen synthesis the next day, so we've done the studies and we do all of our studies in overnight fasted people. So they come into the laboratory after just the same way if you're going to do a blood draw and you're going to get your cholesterol done, you come in overnight fasted. That's because that's your best baseline state. But in that state, you don't have vitamin C. So we need to give you enough vitamin C in order to allow the collagen synthesis that we're hoping to stimulate to actually produce collagen that leaves your cells so that we can measure. Okay. So taking your vitamin C first thing in the morning when you wake up is... It's, it's going to be best probably first thing in the morning. That's one of the things that's really good about you know, people have a glass of orange juice in the morning. One of the reasons that we were, that were, people were encouraged to do that is because that then sets you up for a day where you're going to have high vitamin C through the day. If you're just joining me on The Mountain Life, I'm having a conversation about collagen with Keith Barr, PhD from UC Davis. He's actually in the Netherlands right now working on some collagen research. You mentioned that a few minutes ago that... So I'm here on sabbatical for a year, so... We're running a study where basically in young people who've ruptured their their um, anterior cruciate ligament, so their ACL, in their knee, and they're getting it reconstructed. When you get a reconstruction, most places in the world, they use the hamstring tendon. Mm -hmm. They take out a hamstring tendon, and then they make it into a, a makeshift ACL. And in that process, basically, they make they fold it over, they make it good and strong, and then there's always a little bit of tendon left over. And what we're doing is we're getting that extra tendon and we're going to feed people either a placebo or collagen for seven days. And then we give them heavy water and the water is heavy because just we've modified the H2O and made it into what we call D2O. So it's just an extra proton in there. And so what that does is it means that we can then take that bit of tendon that we get from the hamstring, and we can measure how much of that ligament or tendon was synthesized since we started giving them the heavy water. And so if the collagen that we're feeding them together with some vitamin C increases the rate at which we inc um, that we make um, collagen in that tendon, what we're going to see is that there's going to be more of the D2O in the tendons from the collagen group than in, from the placebo group. Is heavy water something that uh, is available down at your local grocery store? It, it is not. It, it's a nice dope. It, it's non-radioactive. It's totally healthy or safe, I should say. It's just it's just something that we use as a way to separate. Just like if you ever watch CSI or any of those crime shows, they're always in the, the crime lab and they always have this big machine called a mass spec. Well, a mass spec, what it does is it weighs all of the molecules. And so all it is, it's a very safe way for us to then measure what's happening in your body. You sent me about five uh, studies that you, um, conclusions that were made from you and, and your team that you work with, various other researchers. And most of them, uh, if not all of them, I would say has it has more to do with what happens to your connective tissues um, when you combine, you know, collagen ingestion and then exercise and <clears throat> you also have a study about uh, postmenopausal women and the effect of estrogen on 
collagen, tendon collagen synthesis. But what I'm seeing, and we'll go into those studies here in just a minute, but what I'm seeing is you're not doing a lot of research on what I think people out there want collagen to do is to take all their wrinkles away. So you're not talking about hair, nails, and and skin much. Yes, true. But the one thing that we always hear from people when we're, they're doing the studies is they know they know when they're on the collagen group because their their nails grow faster, and that's the one they have to cut their nails more frequently. And so so it is something, and there is good re- research out there. We don't do research too much on the skin. Um, but there is research out there that, that dietary collagen can have an effect on collagen synthesis within the skin. And so that's something that we're also looking at here in the Netherlands, in the group that I'm in, um, just to, to see whether we can actually measure collagen being made and incorporated into the skin. Yes, we are more focused on musculoskeletal injuries because this is the one thing that most people don't understand is everybody knows that heart disease is a really serious problem and, and diabetes is a really serious problem. Well, musculoskeletal injuries actually cost our economy actually more than diabetes and heart disease to combined. The reason for that is because if you think about it, if you can't move, that's what all these tissues do. People have sore backs. They have repetitive stress injuries, and all of these things are tendon, cartilage, and and connective tissue-related disorders. And so we've got this huge number of musculoskeletal injuries, especially as we get older, especially as collagen synthesis rates go down. And it actually costs our economy almost a direct cost or almost half a billion dollars. And when you put in the indirect cost of it, it's the number one reason that people miss work is sprains, strains, and tears. You're looking at almost a trillion dollars worth of cost to the economy. And so this is why we look at all of these musculoskeletal tissues because it's a huge problem and there haven't really been any improvements in musculoskeletal health in the last 25 years. You're testing collagen ingestion just before exercise and then another in another study you're testing it as a means of recovery can you talk about the the difference yeah so so what we've done and and some of the studies and again not all the studies support taking collagen let's be clear about that so so again one of the reasons that i'm in the lab i'm in is because they haven't seen any effect of dietary collagen on collagen synthesis when they've looked And so what we're doing is we're trying to work together to figure out, well, are we measuring different things or is there something that's happening that that's different here? And can, if we change the study a little bit, do we, do our studies agree with each other? And so that's one of the big things we're trying to do is we're trying to come to, to an agreement as to what the effect is. But yes, what we tend to do is we tend to use exercise as a stimulus because I gave the example of muscle protein synthesis. If we want to get big muscles, everybody knows you need to eat protein and and this leucine-rich protein. But if we just go and we eat all the leucine-rich protein we want, but we don't get off the couch and we don't move, everybody, all of your listeners know they're not going to get bigger and stronger just from eating leucine-rich protein. You need the exercise. The leucine-rich protein helps the exercise and build your muscle. And so what we think is happening with the collagen and dietary collagen is that it's helping our connective tissue to increase connective tissue synthesis, 
when we've done, after we've done exercise, especially. And so we know for a fact that exercise stimulates our connective tissues to increase collagen synthesis. Our tendons increase the rate at which they synthesize protein. There are, the connective tissue within the skeletal muscle itself increases with exercise. And so we know that that happens. And it's just really a question as to whether the, the dietary collagen can stimulate that more. And, and really that's what we're, that's what we have shown in a number of studies. And the timing issue that you've, that you raised is, is a second, we think of it as secondary. We like to tell people that, look, 90% of all of these things is just getting something into your diet, just getting fruit and vegetables, just getting, you know, enough protein, just getting some dietary collagen in. If you are a, an elite person or you want to you want to strive to be the best possible you you can be and you need that extra 10%, that's when we talk about timing a little bit more. And the reason that we would use it beforehand is because connective tissues, they don't have a good blood supply like our skeletal muscle does. So our tendons, ligaments, and cartilage, they normally get their nutrients by squeezing out liquid. And every time we pull on the tendon or the ligament, it squeezes out the liquid. And as it relaxes, it's going to suck liquid in from the environment. Every time our, our knee is, we compress the cartilage in our knee, it squeezes out liquid, that liquid goes out and the new liquid comes in. And so when we give the nutritional supplement that is designed to target tendons, ligaments, and cartilage, we tend to give it before just because what it's going to do is all of the, those amino acids that we talked about and all of those other things that we want the cells within those tissues to, to, to see, they're being squeezed into the cartilage, the ligaments, and the, and, the, and the tendons because they're already in that fluid that we're squeezing back and forth. When we take something afterward, it's more designed to get to muscle and other tissues that have really good blood supply. Mm, okay. If our listeners are, you know, listening to this interview, then they go out to your natural food store and they're standing in front of the supplement aisle and they say, gosh, I heard that interview with Heath Barr, the researcher on collagen. What do you want people to remember most? Yeah. So the, so the biggest thing is that when we're looking at at looking at using dietary collagen, there's lots of different companies that are coming out with special formulations. We haven't found that anything makes a difference as far as that. It doesn't doesn't matter if you start off with type two, type one collagen, type three. Sure, in our knee we have type two collagen. In our tendons we have type one. But again, what we're doing is we're breaking everything down to building blocks and we're building something new ourselves. So in our cartilage, we're going to build type two collagen. In our tendon, we're going to use the same amino acids to build type one. So the type of collagen doesn't really matter. What I encourage people to do though, is to look for collagen that comes from skin, fish skin or bovine skin or pig skin. And the reason I do that is because most mammals like us, for example, we store heavy metals in our bones. So if we have excess heavy metals, the way that our body gets rid of them is we stick them into our bones. So when we do a bone-based collagen or a bone broth, what happens is there's going to be a fairly high amount of lead that comes out or other, other, other heavy metals that are not good for us. And if we're taking our collagen every day, that extra little bit of heavy metal might 
that would be the only negative component of any type of dietary collagen. So what we do is we say, look, don't, don't you don't have to spend tons and tons of money to get the special peptides. Just get something that is palatable for you, is hopefully from a skin-based source. And so you're looking for that on the label, that it says something about hides or, or it's a fish product or other things that say skin on it. If you can find that, that's great. You don't have to go in for anything special. That's really all you're looking for. Okay, that's great. Do all the products that we find naturally have vitamin C in there or do, would you recommend taking vitamin C? Yeah, a lot of the products that are made will have some vitamin C in it, if they're this, especially if they're designed to be like a ready drink or something like that. But just take a look at the label. If there's no vitamin C, just... We do it as a, a glass of orange juice. If you're worried about the carbohydrate load, you can look for the the flavored, the little flavored syrups that have no calories in them, but have the vitamin C in them. But it's about what you would get as your da recommended daily allowance. So it's one glass of orange juice or or any six strawberries. I think are worked out. Yeah, exactly. So so we do it a lot of times. I'll do it in a smoothie. I'll take six frozen strawberries, toss it in. That's my vitamin C. I put in my collagen. I put in whatever liquid I want to use, and there I go. I've got my I've got my collagen drink. Keith Barr, PhD from UC Davis on sabbatical. You're in the Netherlands. Thank you so much for joining me on the Mountain Life. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. Welcome back to The Mountain Life. I'm Lynn Ware-Peak. My next guest is Dr. Romy Mushtak. Dr. Romy is a board-certified physician and award-winning wellness speaker and the founder of something called Brain Shift at Work. She specializes in neurology, integrative medicine, and mindfulness. And she aims to create cultural change. She's embarked on a global journey to research and heal the negative impact of the stress responses on our brains and bodies. She joins me today to discuss her new book, The Busy Brain Cure, the eight-week plan to find focus, tame anxiety, and sleep again. Dr. Romy, welcome to the Man. Mountain. Awesome to join you all and your listeners. I don't take anybody's time for granted, so let's dive right in. Well, let's. Okay, so we all know, you know, it's it's this common thing that we wear this badge of honor, as you say, to talk about how stressed or busy we are. But that's becoming an old conversation, isn't it? We yeah. we need to uh, yeah. really make a change. And there's no better place, I think, to start this conversation than to ask you about what happened to you. Oh, my God. Lynn, you know, people often hear, ooh, chronic stress can cause disease. Yes. And I'm here to tell you, chronic stress can kill you. It almost killed me, and I should have known better. I'm a brain doctor. I did everything right according to not only society, but more importantly, my dad and my aunties, as you read about it in my book. And as an immigrant's daughter, English is a third language. Uh, there was one success mantra my entire childhood. I have one daughter, and you will become a doctor. And I did. I entered neurology at a time where less than 5% of the brain doctors in America were women. And I loved my job. That churn and burn special that we all post pandemic feel like we're stuck on. You're churning all day on all cylinders to manage work, 
maybe some semblance of a personal life, burning the midnight oil to catch up on work again, many of our listeners know, or house chores, which is still work, and depriving ourselves of sleep. It caught up with me. And what we thought was just stress-induced reflux was a more serious disease made worse by chronic stress and sleep deprivation, and a term which you and I are going to unpack, I call the busy brain. And it turned out by the time I was correctly diagnosed, I had precancerous lesions and ended up in life-saving surgery in 2010. The worst part was, Lynn, of all of that, was laying in the hospital bed afterwards going, I did everything right in life, and yet nothing I've learned in medical school is going to help me now. I don't know what to do. Wow. Maybe a good place to really launch into this is to talk about what the physiological response is in our body. Yours happened to be gastrointestinal, it sounds Mm -hmm. like. Mm -hmm. Um, But there are many other ramifications of of what we do. So what is actually going on in our bodies when we are feeling stress and anxiety? I thank you for having this conversation because I think the conversations that have been have we've had prior to the release of this book and research are really quite frankly outdated. We talk about the acute stress response prior to the pandemic. We're at a point where neither you nor any of the listeners want to hear, oh, Lynn, just eat berries and breathe and everything's going to be just fine. Chronic stress has an impact on how the brain is wired, not just in the acute stress response center, the limbic system, if I can dig into some brain science here, but what I call the airport traffic control tower of the brain and the body known as the hypothalamus, specifically the SCN nucleus and your circadian rhythm that not only governs our sleep-wake cycle, but it's like an airport traffic control tower. You're not only controlling the flights that are coming right in there to Salt Lake City. But if the airport gets shut down due to a snowstorm in Salt Lake City, it's going to affect all the incoming flights from all over the country and all over the world. That's exactly the way the brain is. It's wired, the circadian rhythm, to take care of every part of our brain, our memory, our mood, our processing, but also our body, our digestion, our hormones, our breathing, our immune system. So when we're under chronic stress, which is months, days, years on a path to burnout, we actually then have a pattern of neuroinflammation in the brain that I say causes a busy brain and can start to have first these specific mental health symptoms. And most of us as high achieving professionals have learned to work through those symptoms and then the physical health consequences start. And an example was last night, I was at a book tour stop And a woman tells me, I was under so much stress, I was having severe headaches, and I was taking aspirin and Tylenol, nothing was helping. I went to the emergency room, they couldn't measure the blood pressure, it was so high, and she was having a stroke. That is what chronic stress will do to us. That's big. Yeah. There are people who say that they thrive on stress. Mm -hmm. They operate better with deadlines. They run around because maybe they're getting a little bit of that dopamine. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, Just the feeling of, Mm -hmm. you know, stressing out and then having it relieved by making a deadline or performing at work or whatever it is. But are there bodies that actually do thrive on it in a good way and it's okay for all of your all of your systems i feel like we're talking about apples and dragons here that old moniker and a ted talk that became famous that stress is good for you is about the acute stress response so i grew up in illinois and nothing was 
more volatile than driving when there was freezing rain and you hit a patch of black ice. That's an example of when the acute stress response is going to help you. So I'm not looking at oncoming traffic in the car and saying, whoa, what a handsome gentleman driving that, you know, Jeep that just went by. I'm actually focused on, you know, lifting my foot up off the brake and, you know, steering into the, the uh, right way with the steering wheel and avoid getting into oncoming traffic. Same thing from time to time. If you have a work deadline, that's an acute stress response. But we have to be careful because if you do that repeatedly, in my book, I call that the stress success cycle, that you're always living on the edge of stress and burnout. And you think, I can't perform at work and get through my quarterly sales goal, or I can't get through this week managing being a mom with you know young children and multiple activities and a boss at work without constantly being on the edge of burnout. If you're just joining me on The Mountain Life, I'm having a conversation with Dr. Romy Mushtaq. She is talking about her new book, The Busy Brain Cure. It's the eight-week plan to find focus, tame anxiety, and sleep again. Dr. Romy, I just have to ask this question because in your last, the, the last points you were talking about, I was thinking about the things that I love to do that bring me into the present. And mm. I think it's because then... I'm not distracted by anything else. Well, I'll give you an example. Whitewater kayaking. When I'm whitewater kayaking, I don't think of anything else. And and so I think it's good for me. Mm -hmm. But then on the other hand, I wonder if it's because I'm having an acute stress response because, you know, it's about survival. You know, it seems like it's good on the one hand, but maybe not so good on the other because I'm having that kind of cortisol (laughs) in overactive mode. No, you know, with with, you you clearly are experienced in whitewater kayaking and can probably handle, am I saying it right? The grade five, six rapids. Did did I say that right? You said it right. I definitely cannot handle the grade five, six rapids. Okay, listen, Auntie Romy here is like, oh my God, don't even put me on the grade one rapids. So for me, that would be stress, right? I would be the person that would fly out of the boat and get hit by somebody else's oar. But for you, it's a hobby. People can't see us on video right now, but you're talking to me about whitewater rafting and you could just hear the joy in your voice and it's all across your face. What you're experiencing when we do an activity we enjoy, you know, for me, that's yoga and meditation or walking around the lake with my dog, um, being one with all the ducks and the swans that are here in Florida in, in the part in the lake. Both of those things are identical in that they're actually stimulating in a healthy way dopamine and adrenaline, not that dopamine peak we get when we knock out another work email, but one that is sustained because we are out in nature. For busy brain prone people, Lynn, like you and I, that's great to do because what you're actually telling me is you have to be in the moment. You're using your eyes, you're using your sound, you're using your uh, hand-eye coordination, you're using your full body, all of your senses and your mind and your body are engaged. What you're describing is a state of flow. And when we cure our busy brain, we can be in that state of flow, not only when I'm walking the dog or doing yoga in the park and you're whitewater rafting, but even sitting, focusing on one task at work. Well, I like that. The state of flow, we all think about that, don't we? We've heard about the state of flow and it sounds so nice. And this is what you're talking about in the busy brain cure, essentially how we bring more of that into our lives. So is it really going to take me eight weeks to get Mm -hmm. there? 
because <laughs> it took me however many years to get to this point, right? <laughs> it is. And I think that's a, thank you so much for bringing that up. A lot of people, when I thought, when I ended up sick in surgery, this had been maybe 14 years of chronic sleep deprivation and stress being a woman in medical school residency fellowship at the job. It doesn't mean it's going to take 14 years for me to undo all of this. So that's a falsehood. The brain is plastic in the body and can constantly change and improve. So the first step you do is I want to know, do you have a busy brain? We describe that as you're chronically stressed. You have difficulty focusing or adult attention deficit disorder coupled with anxiety and difficulty sleeping. So you need caffeine or Ritalin to get through your day and you need alcohol or a sleeping pill or a sedative to calm down at night. That's a busy brain. What we, the first step we ask people to do is take the busy brain test. Uh, we'll put a link here for your show notes. People can go to drromey.com, take it for free. During our research period for the book, 17,000 people took this test. It gave me unique insight into those people that had a busy brain and were on the way to burnout with chronic stress. What symptoms were they having? And then how do we treat that? And most people, when they come to us and their score is above a 30, they've already tried everything. As I said earlier, they don't want to be told to eat berries and breathe. The last thing they want their workplace to do is hand them another mindfulness app or an emotional resilience class. Instead, they're ready to heal the root cause of when your airport traffic control tower and a busy brain is not working, please fix it. And in hindsight, eight weeks is a very short period. We give micro habits or little brain shifts to do every week that create a place where you can now wake up energized with or without caffeine, be in a state of flow at work, and then fall asleep and stay asleep easily. <laughs> that sounds like a pie in the sky idea almost. <laughs> you know, I mean, but I, listen, I went into neurology when women weren't in there. And today, this week, I'm celebrating another pie in the sky moment with you. My book hit the USA Today national bestseller list. Uh, we're still looking up the data, but for a woman in STEM or woman in medicine to do this compared to a man, it's the odds are stacked against us, like 200 to one. So you brought the pie in the sky doctor here. We tested this protocol on 1000 executives who went through the eight week challenge. We measured their busy brain before and after, and the results were astounding. Not only did people show market improvement in sleep and mood, here's the best part that's the pie in the sky. We give biohacks on what you should be eating, but we don't put anybody on a diet or a cleanse. So if you've already given up on your new year diet, we've got the solution for you. We actually celebrate people eating comfort food and most people end up reducing not only brain bloating, but belly bloating while they're on this. Well, yeah, let's talk a little bit about that because I remember hearing a long time ago about the sympathetic and parasympathetic mm -hmm. nervous system and how, you know, we as Americans in our culture, you know, how, how often are we eating in our cars after going through a drive-through instead of doing those three to four hour middle of the day meals done practiced in many countries, eating comfort yes. food maybe yes. maybe it's not all blueberries and your mm -hmm. body is being helped by the food can you yes. go into that a little more i will that's also part of the acute stress response you're absolutely right when we talk about the autonomic nervous system the autonomic nervous system is tied to the limbic system and the airport traffic control tower so we talk about that as one mechanism when you're chronically stressed that system that helps you to rest and digest and your body and brain in a state of flow is now disarmed 
And when you're under chronic stress or you have a busy brain, you're constantly in your fight or flight sympathetic response. And what we see is people having this triad of symptoms where they can't focus. You have adult onset attention deficit disorder. You have ruminating anxiety with it. So that ruminating anxiety is something like this. It should take me three minutes to send you an email to thank you for you know inviting me to be on your esteemed radio show. And 37 minutes later, I can't focus and too many browser windows open on my brain and my computer and I'm anxious and I don't know which one to tackle. And tonight I'll be having 72 warring conversations in my head and the loudest voice is the negative voice saying, Ooh, thank God we didn't use video for that interview because my hair was so frizzy when I talked to Lynn. Like the least important thing is the thing that's haunting you in your sleep. And that's what happens. Um, you want to talk about pie in the sky. Like how many people just listening to that, what could be utopia, sitting in the middle of the day for a luxurious Italian or French meal for three hours. And I'm thinking, do you know how much is on my to-do list today? Three hours in the middle of the day, that'll destroy me, my business, my family. That's being in a sympathetic stress response. <laughs> what we find though, is when you cure a busy brain, all of a sudden, not every email, not every item in your to-do list feels like a code red, must take care of it now. And you're able to do what we call quick shifts. Focus on one thing quickly, go to the next and be your productive self. Mm -hmm. Comfort food though is exactly what you said. It's the ability to share food that brings you joy, that is tied to culture, a positive memory, a meal, and hopefully sharing it with people you enjoy and, uh, not being on a diet or cleanse. Uh, we know that when people neurologically, psychiatrically are on a diet and you're meal prepping or you're forcing a smoothie down, while in theory that's healthy nutrition, you're actually elevating stress hormone levels and you're feeling deprived of the foods consciously or subconsciously you know you can't have. So we actually tell people once or twice a week, please schedule that comfort food meal, whether it's that luxurious three-hour multi-course meal or just, you know, for me in this cold weather right now, it's Indian dish, basmati rice with potato curry. Mm. And it just makes me honor our family traditions and our Punjabi cooking and that. So enjoy those things and schedule them. And then the stress eating kind of just lifts away. And mm. that, to your point, it disarms that uh, sympathetic overdrive. Right. You were talking a bit about sleep and it, so I have to ask this question, and then I want to get into the eight weeks, kind of an overview, perhaps, of the eight weeks. But when we wake up in the middle of the night, you know, for a lot of people, it's exactly at 2.09 a.m. or whatever. It's astonishing how... Asking for a friend, Lynn, right? Asking for a friend. We woke up at yeah. 2.09. I got you. I got you, girl. Yeah. And then you say that the least important and really the most negative thoughts come into our brain. And I've come to tell myself, Okay, that's a paranoid thought. Think about it again when you wake up in the morning. Um, but is there some reason physiologically that we're more paranoid in the middle of the night? Yes. Well, we can say, call it paranoid. We can call it a worry 
or we just can't prioritize and somehow your brain is forcing you to wake up and say, you missed that email, you need to do it right now at 2.09 a.m. and you're half asleep, so you hit reply all and now at 2.17, you're waking up half your team, right? Or the laundry seems like emergent to handle and you're gonna get up and do a load before the kids get up. It's an irrational worry or thought you're trying to control there actually is so that same pattern of neuroinflammation that's disrupting the circadian rhythm your sleep wake cycle you're under so much stress and inflammation that one of three things is happening when you're waking up in the middle of the night one we may lose a few friends when i say this is if you had alcohol in the evening before you slept right Unfortunately, alcohol uh, directly um, reduces, while it may put you to sleep and sedate you, it upregulates these anxiety busy brain receptors and you will wake up in the middle of the night. It doesn't allow you to go to deeper stages of sleep. It actually raises the, the temperature in the brain and wakes you up. The second thing that happens is we're in such a busy brain that your insulin levels are spiking in the middle of the night in your brain and it is dropping your blood sugar levels. And this is an inherent response for your body to wake up saying, oh, you need to regulate blood sugar. And you know, when our blood sugar levels are off a little too high or low, we're gonna feel anxious, those ruminating thoughts. But here's the third thing that was so important in the research as I was digging through the medical research. One of the things that gets missed consistently by doctors in men and women, but specifically women, is abnormal thyroid function. One in eight women has something known as subclinical thyroidism in America, and it was missed by the primary care doctor. In the book, we give you the full lab slip. We ask your doctor to check all of them. If you're like me and you have melanin in your skin, it's one in four women. That abnormality in the thyroid is now disrupting your sleep-wake metabolism cycle, and that's why you're wide awake in the middle of the night and functioning. So typically, we check those three things first. Did you have alcohol? Is it blood sugar dysregulation because of stress? Nothing to do with type 2 diabetes. You continue this, you potentially could get diabetes. And the third thing you're waking up is a dysregulated thyroid gland. Now, listen, if this just happens from time to time because you're on a work deadline or you got some bad news in your family, that's to be expected. But if this is chronically happening, we have the labs in the eight-week protocol that we ask you to go to your doctor and get. And we made sure because we were testing these this workplace wellness program in corporate America, all of these labs should be covered by traditional insurance programs, health insurance programs in the United States for the most part. So yeah. would that be hyper or hypothyroid? Both. Too much? Or too, oh, both. both. And Just you can yo-yo. Subclinical hypothyroidism is low thyroid. One of the things that gets missed, especially in women, is autoimmune thyroid. And so you can actually yo-yo between high or low. What we know in thyroid disease, high or low in women and in men, that about 40% of these patients only have symptoms that sound psychiatric. Anxious all the time, I can't focus. So they're being given ADHD medicines or anxiety medicines, and that may be the Band-Aid, but we didn't figure out the problem that's lying underneath, thyroid. And that's why I candidly share my story in the book. It's really devastating. I was a doctor doing research on women's hormones in epilepsy and migraines for women. I kept looking at this going, do I have a thyroid problem? Yeah, my hair is falling out in chunks. I'm having infertility issues. And they only checked the two, three labs instead of the full panel. 
And it wasn't until I started to find the cure for my own busy brain and went to an integrative medicine doctor, they did the full panel that we have for you. We found out, oh my God, I have autoimmune thyroid disease. And that was at age 39, I had my first regular menstrual cycle. And I don't want any other woman to go through that. Wow, that's kind of crazy. It, it sounds crazy, Lynn, but it's more common than you think. Yeah, Every time right. I give this lecture, people are raising their hand going, I knew it was my thyroid and I had to beg. And the doctor finally found out mm -hmm. like it happens over and over. And that's why me being on your show is so important. If you're listening and you're a woman, please go get a full thyroid panel. You have a woman in your life you love, please, who's an adult, this book was written for adults, please tell them to go and get this checked. Mm. So the busy brain cure, eight weeks. What am I going to expect in the first week? What am I going to do? Well, the first week is easy. It's about self-awareness and eliminating self-judgment, which can tend to happen when we have a busy brain. You read all the stories of my aunties and the wicked judgment that comes up in my brain when I have a busy brain from the point of the aunties. So we say, take the busy brain test in week one, get your brain score. I, listen, I'm a rational brain doctor. This isn't about being pie in the sky or who isn't stressed or burned out these days. This is, let's get a number and let's fix it. And then we ask you to face what I call the aunties in your brain, resistance, denial, and projection, and come up with an intention of what would I feel like eight weeks from now. The second week is critical. No matter where you are, the first part of the brain shift program, S in shift, is sleep and circadian rhythm. We put people through an easy to follow seven day sleep challenge based in cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia. And we have a couple of supplement recommendations too, that no matter how bad your sleep has been the last seven days or the last seven years, we have a solution for you. And we, um, you know, you download it or it's in the book and you can use check marks. And we typically find within a week or two, people are now getting restorative sleep and some of that anxiety is starting to get curbed as well. Sleep aids. Are there any sleep aids that you recommend? You did say the word supplement. So mm -hmm. is something like melatonin included in the okay list? Not typically. Melatonin, I only prescribe to some of my executives or athletes that may be traveling and using it for just three to seven days because of jet lag, change in time zones. Um, you worked a night shift and that's not normal for you, melatonin long-term can actually promote a busy brain because then you're, you're taking it and it's signaling to your brain, hey, Lynn, your brain doesn't need to make melatonin anymore. And melatonin is key. We actually recommend magnesium glycinate and clinical research studies tip shows that most of us in America are magnesium deficient. Not only is it immediately a calming agent, magnesium glycinate with a G is the one that crosses the blood-brain barrier and is needed to um, help all the metabolism and hormone pathways for your circadian rhythm. The other one we recommend, but please talk to your doctor, this is just a health education show, is 5-HTP, 5-hydroxytryptophan. I break down the medical research in the book at low dose. This is a natural precursor to serotonin, your feel-good boost of mood-elevating hormone and Mel and then it breaks down to melatonin naturally in the body. And that's what we need at night to put ourselves in that rest, digest place, rather than that wound up busy brain place with the 72 warring conversations going on. Mm. The book is The Busy Brain Cure, The Eight-Week Plan to Find Focus, Tame Anxiety, and Sleep Again. Oh, it sounds so great.
I wish for our listeners and for you and me both that we'll all achieve the busy brain cure. Dr. Romy, thank you so much for joining me on The Mountain Life. Lynn, it was a pleasure to walk in a pie in a sky moment with you.